0: As the ushers are going back, you may want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs, because we're going to be spending a lot of time in various places there this morning. I know of no famous person with such quick and piercing words as Winston Churchill. He was often incredibly cutting in what he said. Stories about his ongoing spat with Lady Astor abound. For example, one night Winston had been drinking and happened upon Lady Astor who said to him, Winston, you are drunk. Shame on you. He replied, yes, I am. But you are ugly and I'll be sober in the morning. We may smile at the, the cleverness of Churchill, and yet, at the same time, we should recognize that cutting and cruel interactions are becoming more and more the order of the day in our world. Written and spoken bombshells are being lobbed at an alarming rate between people and groups with intense anger and an equal lack of care or understanding of how those who hear will be impacted South of the border, we are witnessing right- and left-wing groups pouring verbal fuel on the powder keg of hatred and distrust. The results are many. Social fabric is being torn. The ability to have a dispassionate conversation is gone. In friendship groups, even families are being blown apart read an interview in the Guardian newspaper last week where they interviewed numerous people for an article entitled QAnon Orphans, People Who Have Lost Loved Ones to Conspiracy Theories. And in it, one of the men there talked about the slow death of the relationship between him and his twin brother. His twin brother started to read the conspiracy theories and just got down the vortex so low that they could not even communicate anymore. They were only angry. They no longer talk, having hung up on on each other months before, and destroying the natural bond that tends to be between twins. The same situation undoubtedly also appears in the ultra-left-wing Antifa group, and their families as well. Each of these extreme groups seeking to garner cult-like adherence to their ideologies conspiracies, and in the process, they are tearing families and friendships, even churches, apart. In Canada, families and friendships are similarly poisoned by exchanges between vaccine advocates and anti-vaxxers, those who make masking laws, and those who protest them. Vaccine Passport proponents and op- opponents, increasing levels of fear and anxiety, lives and lifestyles lost to an invisible germ. Now, to top it all off, an ill timed election that can only polarize and divide relationships that have already been fractured. Now, this is not to say that there is no room in all of this for justified verbal outrage. In Canada, the number of deaths of precious people in long-term care homes that are poorly managed can only lead to legitimate outrage. The unmarked graves in residential schools call for outrage, and abroad. The recent bombings of the ISIS-K in Afghanistan are worthy of outrage. And the promises extended to protect Afghani Translators and fixers by the coalition forces they helped have been broken by the Canadian government and the U.S. government and others. And these brave men and women are left behind to be found and executed by the Taliban. All worthy of strong words. And yet, if we are to be in relationship with one another and help our, our worlds function well... We must somehow work our way through this gauntlet of anger and misunderstanding. When it seems like there would be no better time to take a vow of silence, we are in relationships and worlds into which we must speak. When the false notion that having a strong pulse equals having a viable opinion abounds, we must still be able to explore and explain truth. But in an age when irreconcilable differences is more the norm than the exception, how do we talk to one another? How do we interact with family and friends with whom we may disagree without having an elephant in the room all of the time? Because if there are more things that we cannot talk about than things that we can talk about, we really don't have community or family or intimacy anymore. So how do we converse wisely as, Christian, as Christians, as followers of Christ? What I want us to look at a little bit later this morning is six principles for wisely participating in what I have called gunpowder conversations. Conversations during which there's gunpowder spread all around the room, and all it's going to take is a spark to set off an explosion. All of them are from the book of Proverbs, and I would call them God's wisdom for gunpowder conversations. Granted, not all the wisdom that would be helpful is here, but I think that the Holy Spirit put these verses in Proverbs for such a time as these, and I would like to look at some of them together and deduce six principles for gunpowder uh, conversations. But before we look at these principles, I think that we need to zoom out and take a brief, bigger picture, a look at the biblical context around the power of words themselves, and then how Proverbs as a genre or type of writing actually works. First, the power of words. We're only a couple of verses into the Bible when we notice the power of God's word to create He speaks, and the physical world and mankind come into existence. Just speaking, and there is life, there's beauty, there's goodness. I suppose we could say that's great. He's God. Of course, his words have creative power, but we're not him. And that's not only a good reminder, it's true. And yet what we ought not forget is that in Genesis, God created man and woman in his image. And one of the implications of being created in his image is that our words have power as well. Not the same power that God's words do, but our words still have the power to be able to affect the course of our lives and others' lives for good or evil. One of the places where we can see how words spoken by people can affect the trajectory of others' lives is also established early in Genesis, particularly in the life of Noah. Now, when we think about the story of Noah, we tend to focus on his faithfulness in building the boat, God's protection of him as the ark is on top of the water with a giraffe head sticking out the top, landing on dry land, the promise of the rainbow, and then his blessing of Noah, giving him the same words that he gave to Adam and Eve, go forth, multiply, and fill the earth. But sometimes we skip past the post-rainbow Noah's story. His planting of a vineyard, drinking of its fruit, and passing out drunk and at least half-naked in his tent. His son Ham was the first one to happen on his father. Saw what you shouldn't have seen, went out and told his brothers. His brothers got together and they put a blanket on each one of their shoulders and backed into the tent and covered up their father without having to see him and left. That's probably what Ham should have done. Noah wakes up, and I'm assuming that since he passed out, he was probably hungover and he realized what had happened. Rather than admitting his own foolishness in underestimating the potency of his first batch of post-flood homebrew, in Genesis 9:25 he proceeds to curse not Ham, but Ham's Ham's son Canaan. One might think kind of embarrassing—a hungover old man cursing an innocent grandchild—and it is embarrassing. But the power of those words had devastating effect years later because the sons of Canaan became the Canaanites, the people who occupied the promised land that God promised to his people Israel. And during Israel's subsequent uh, taking over of the promised land, God told them that they were to slaughter men, women, and children. In the process, all descendants of the cursed Canaan. Much, if not all of this happened because of the power of words. Noah spoke the words of cursing and loosed them on the world with devastating long-term effects. We could look at other instances that continue to support the power of words. Later, in Genesis chapter 27, when Jacob stole the blessing That belonged to Ishmael, his older brother. Jacob gets blessed by his father and ends up being one of the forefathers of the great nation of Israel, God's people. And Esau is crushed, plots to kill his brother, because the power of those words of blessing should have been his as the firstborn, and they were stolen from him. They understood the power of words. Make no mistake, As you talk and email and text and tweet, the words that you let go have power and must not be handled carelessly. You might think, I mean, these are just blessing and cursing things. Well, read James 3 if you don't think that the power of words continues today. Okay? The second contextual matter I would like us to consider before we look at Proverbs is to look at how they should be interpreted. Just like an instruction manual is read different from a novel, biographies are read different from satire, so too different types of scripture in the way that they are written communicate in a different way. They have distinct styles, assumptions about how they are work, how they work, and how they should be understood. For example, a psalm And the gospel could make exactly the same point, but do it in radically different ways. And Proverbs is different as well in the way that it works. And I want to have just look at one assumption today. And that one assumption that is required for accurate interpretation is this, that Proverbs give us principles to apply, not promises to claim. A proverb often describes something as if it will happen all of the time, and it's easy to see them as promises, but they are not. What they are is descriptions of what happens most of the time, much of the time. For example, take the verse that every Christian parent knows. Proverbs 22:6, 6. Train up a child in the way they will go, And when they are old, they will not depart from it. I know, and perhaps you know, a lot of good and godly parents who have raised up their children to follow after Christ, only to have them rebel against him and want nothing to do with the faith. And excellent parents flog themselves with false guilt because if this is a promise from God... And it didn't come through. It can't be God's fault because he doesn't break promises. We have to have been terrible parents. And that's just not true. That's the assumption if it's a promise. Instead, what, what it is is this. Solomon observed case after case where loving parents trained up a child in the way they should go. And more often than not... It resulted in the child following God their entire lives. But not always. It's principle, not a promise. We're going to be looking at principles, not promises. Now, for the remainder of our time, having understood again the power of words, and perhaps understanding for the first time how a proverb ought to be interpreted, I want us to look at six principles from the Proverbs they give us God's wisdom in gunpowder conversations. The first of these is found in chapter 3. And the way this is going to go is that on this side will be the verse and the principle will be on the other side when, when it comes up. The first one is in Proverbs chapter 3. During the first two verses, Solomon says that if you follow his teaching, you will have long life characterized by peace. Okay, And then he drops this teaching that will bring long life characterized by peace in verse 3. And it reads, Do not let kindness and truth, notice both of them please, don't let them leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good reputation in the sight of God and man. Solomon says that if you want peace in your relationships with God and other people and long, good life, you need to have both kindness and truth characterize your life and your interactions. To interact wisely today, you need both. I would strongly suggest that you lead with kindness first. Truth without kindness in Canada, is conversational suicide because of the false but prevalent assumption that such a thing as truth doesn't exist. So to yell and attempt to shove the truth down someone's throat, well, you might as well try and convince the Jews that Hitler was a humanitarian. You'd have about as much success. Instead, kindness is an essential quality to winning a hearing. It should both lead the way and pave the way for the truth. I haven't always been good at this. I have led with truth way too often, way too harshly. But it sure works well when I have. I had a number of conversations this summer with an 18-year-old girl whose family we were vacationing with. They're not believers in any sense of the word. Early on, like the first out of the seven days, she told me how she meditated to Buddha every day and used a Ouija board to find out what she should do with her life and prayed to Michael, the archangel for protection and a Hindu god that started with the word K, the name I can't remember, to help her find anything that she had lost. And I'll tell you, it was hard not going into truth mode in debate fashion right there. I just kindly asked questions, and kept my mouth shut. Three days later, when everyone is on a hike, we end up walking together, and she asked me, so what do you believe about heaven and hell and how people get there? And I had a half an hour to 45 minutes to gently explain the gospel to her, which I don't think she'd ever heard before. And she listened, and she interacted intelligently with me. If I had jumped down her throat about praying to Michael, because the Scripture says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, I guarantee we would have not had a meaningful gospel conversation that was centered on truth. Please don't hear me say that truth is to be put on the back shelf and left there that what is true for you is great, and what is true for me is great, even though we disagree on fundamental levels. Rather, what I'm saying is that in our current conversational climate, I would strongly suggest that we lead the way with kindness and trust the Holy Spirit to open up gaps into which we can speak truth. And that's the principle. As you lead with conversational kindness, Trust the Holy Spirit to open up places to graciously speak truth. First kindness, and trust the Holy Spirit to open up those places where you can speak truth. The second principle for gunpowder conversations is found in chapter 26, and it's in back-to-back proverbs that must go together to get Solomon's point. The translation that I'm putting up there is a new living paraphrase because I think it just lays it out the clearest. Notice the contradiction in the verses four and five. Verse four: When arguing with fools, don't answer their foolish arguments, or you'll become as foolish as they are. Then verse five says: When arguing with fools, be sure to answer their foolish arguments or they will become wise in their own estimation. One thing we are reminded of here, again, is that you can interpret Proverbs as promises, because these two verses, one intentionally after the other, contradict one another. The first one's saying, do not debate with a fool. The second one saying, by all means, debate with them. So, which is right. Well, they're both correct, depending on the circumstances. Solomon put them together to make sure that we would get the principle that we must discern early the receptivity of the listener before we speak. Discern early the receptivity of the hearer before you speak. What Solomon is saying is that as we converse or even debate with someone who lacks understanding, discern early whether they're even willing to converse in a civil manner. Some are not open to dialogue. They're super antagonistic. And so by attempting to debate with them or argue with them, you may in fact lower yourself to their level of aggression. In such a case, Solomon tells us not to bother because it will make our behavior worse. If, on the other hand, you discern early that the person who lacks understanding is open to truth, then by all means, continue to speak to them, because your wise and truthful knowledge may change their lives. Now, there's an additional proverb that can help your early discernment process of whether or not to continue the conversation. And it also encourages us to take our cue on the behavior of the person who is with us, who we're talking to. Proverbs 29.9 says, when a man has a conversation with a, when a wise man has a conversation with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs, and there is no rest. So you can tell early in a conversation that it's time to back out If a person's response to your kindness and truth-filled message is sarcasm and scorn, that goes on and on. The verse says there is no rest from it. Solomon seems to indicate that if there is a conversation in which each contributor honors the other and withholds demeaning behavior like scorn and sarcasm, by all means invest in it, but that receiving a response that is full of scorn and sarcasm, that's a signal that it's time to change the conversation. It's time to change the subject. It's time to change your location at times. The bottom line is that it's not worth having a conversation with some people sometimes. Perhaps they're not ready. Perhaps they never will be. It's a sad reality, but I think it's a growing reality. And we want to be those who steward our time and the truth wisely by investing in conversations that have promise. Discern early the receptivity of the listener. Now we've talked a lot about discernment and resulting self-control so that if you stop listening now or the audio pooched or the the hot air from the mask on your eyes has uh, put you to sleep, you might conclude that no one should ever speak. But early discernment and potential restraint are only part of the wisdom that Solomon shares. What about the process of actually talking? Well, he also gives us counsel on speaking wisely, even though he is way more on the cautious side and even we are as Canadians. The first of these Proverbs is in chapter 18, verse 13. It says, He who answers before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. Solomon's words do not prohibit you from talking, but it does advise you against speaking before you have fully heard what the other person is saying to you. And sometimes that listening is tough. I'm sure that you have been amazed, even appalled, by people who do nothing but talk, who use humor as a way to get the attention back on themselves, or will ask you a question knowing that they can hijack the answer and take over the conversation again. It's interesting that Solomon doesn't mention any of these things that we know to be manipulative and rude and self-serving, he merely hints that someone who is a self-controlled, wise person will tolerate this stuff as they seek to understand not merely what is said, but what is meant by what is said, so that when you finally do get a chance to speak, it is with incredible understanding, even empathy. Proverbs fifteen twenty-eight adds to this by saying, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Can you see the difference? Holding back or barfing out. Can you see how listening will give you a better understanding that will help you consider how to respond to this person? Pondering your response can guard you from a flippant comeback. A dismissive reply from a response that actually fires past what another person is saying. Ponder. As you know, anger intensifies conversation and it quickens the exchange of words. Seeking to understand and pondering a response de-intensifies it. It slows it down and may actually prepare the person to hear what you're going to say. And then, when you say what you're going to say, having understood and pondered, you have a greater chance of deeply connecting with the heart of the person you are talking with. Models do not abound for this. Television shows and movies model quick, often thoughtless banter back and forth, is the way to converse. Solomon encourages slow, considered responses, especially to volatile people. Now, in addition to the advice on the speed of one's response, Solomon has wisdom to share on the spirit of that response as well. In Proverbs 15.1, he writes, "...a gentle answer turns away wrath." But harsh words stir it up. When we're in one of those conversations, you know the ones when someone is blowing a gasket at you, criticizing you, making disparaging remarks about you. You have a choice. Do you escalate the situation by raising your voice and letting rip a couple of good words that you've had in mind for a bit? or do you do as solomon suggests and respond with a gentle answer and a soft voice saying things like i'm i'm sorry you feel that way i understand how you could come to that conclusion but explain some more a gentle answer to deflate anger so what we've seen so far in terms of talking is to first listen so that you understand what the person is really saying, to ponder what you ought to say given that understanding, and to de-escalate anger with a gentle response. There's one more. Proverbs 10.19 says this, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Solomon's final counsel to us would be to keep it brief rather than blabber on. That may seem really ironic given that I've talked for 30 minutes, but I don't usually. Keep it brief rather than blabber on. Why, why would he say that? Because what Solomon is revealing here is that the more you talk the better the chances are that you will sin by what you say. So even as you answer, say what needs to be said, I'm not saying to shrink it down, but say what needs to be said, and then stop. Rhetorically, a short response has much more power than a long one. Spiritually, the short, shorter the answer the better the chances that you will not say something that will damage either the relationship or the truth. In the 1994 movie Forrest Gump premiered, it was a story of an Alabama man with an IQ of 75. Most of us are probably between 110 and 125. He had 75, but he showed incredible wisdom. Often during the movie, he either gave his opinion or was asked his opinion, and he would give a brief response, and then he would say, and that's all I've got to say about that. Despite his low IQ, Solomon would salute his wisdom, and ours as well, if we keep it it brief, rather than blabbering on when we say or intimate, and that's all I've got to say about that. When we speak in gunpowder conversations, we would first listen to understand what is really meant by what is said. Ponder what a wise response would be. De-escalate anger with a gentle answer and keep it brief rather than blabbering on. They're not promises. They're principles that will work a lot of the time, and when they're combined, they'll have even greater power. Now, perhaps because I've been in ministry for 40-plus years, I know a lot of what Solomon says from experience. I doled out, especially in my first 20 years, enough criticism and unwanted opinions and sarcasm to do most of us for a couple of lifetimes. On the other hand, I've been flayed by the words of people I thought were friends on multiple occasions. But I suppose all of us have been in both situations, haven't we? And we now live in a time of rage and fractured relationships on levels I have never seen before. And we have a choice of how we speak to others in gunpowder situations and conversations. And it is so crucial right now. That is why I wanted to share some practical wisdom with you that would help us engage in conversations that are redemptive so that we might be peacemakers, so that we might win a hearing for the truth, that we might make Jesus attractive. It's actually... Maybe more fitting than is initially obvious that we would remember Jesus and his death today at his table. For in his crucifixion, we see, and in trial and crucifixion, we see examples of restraint and gentleness. And at the table, we receive grace from God to be like him. Isaiah prophesied about him this way. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Despite the injustice, despite the lies, despite the unfair trial, despite the violence against against him, Jesus said nothing In retaliation. In fact, if you listen to the few words that he does say from the cross, they're just full of grace. Today you will be with me in paradise. Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. He's shown us the path to walk and will give us the grace to walk it if we ask.